We'll be uh, looking at the next uh, few weeks at Jesus and the Atonement uh, in light of Good Friday and Resurrection Day. So a little different. And if I can actually get to Leviticus, I'll read the text. I went too far. Okay, chapter 1. The Lord called Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When any one of you brings an offering to the Lord, you shall bring your offering of livestock from the herd or from the flock. If his offering is a burnt offering from the herd, he shall make a male, he shall offer a male without blemish. He shall bring it to the entrance of the tent of meeting, that he may be accepted before the Lord. He shall lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering, and it shall be accepted for him to make atonement for him. Then he shall kill the bull before the Lord. And Aaron's sons, the priests, shall bring the blood and throw the blood against the sides of the altar, that is, at the entrance of the tent of meeting. Then he shall flay the burnt offering and cut it into pieces. And the sons of Aaron the priest shall put fire on the altar and arrange wood on the fire. And Aaron's sons the priest shall arrange the pieces, the head and the fat, on the wood that is on the fire of the altar. But its entrails and its legs he shall wash with water. And the priest shall burn all of it on the altar as a burnt offering, a food offering, with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. We'll stop there. It goes on to kind of repeat a lot of that in terms of the different animals that are offered. And uh, we'll get to that in just a little bit. But why don't we pray? Father, with this text, we enter a time that is uh, so different from our own, that is in many ways so foreign for us. And yet, uh, this is your word, and you did not waste your time in writing it. It is still intended to be an example for us. It is still intended to point us to the work of your Son. And so, this morning, work in our hearts. Help us to hear what you have to say. May your word be alive and active this morning, the two-edged sword, cutting us to the heart to remove the poison that lies within. Show us mercy this morning because of him who loved us and gave himself for us, Jesus. Amen. Let me grab something here. My Bible is stubborn and rebellious and won't stay open. Therefore, I'm taking measures that may assist me in this process. See, capos can do more than one thing. All right? They can help me keep my Bible open. That's good. Uh, this week, for those of you who aren't familiar, was Fat Tuesday this past week. That doesn't mean uh, that's a great day to gain weight. It's, it was not a celebration of people who have too much weight. Uh, what it is, 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 well, what it started as was a day on the church calendar when the, the last day of the feast that occurs between Epiphany and Lent. And so it is a time of feasting, it is a time of joy. That's how it's meant to be before you enter into the time of fasting. 
and sacrifice that is that Lent is meant to be. But being good Americans, uh, and it only doesn't happen in America, it happens other places too, being good sinners, what has it has turned into is sort of this celebration of apparently all that is sinful. It is, a, it is an opportunity for many people to fatten up on their sin because they know that they're going to have to not partake of those particular sins for about 40 days. It's sort of a false understanding of what this has meant to be in the church calendar. It has been taken over by this quest for excess. They feast on sin and debauchery. We've all seen the pictures from La Carnival down in Buenos Aires and Mardi Gras over in uh, New Orleans. We get the idea, right? This is not the way it's meant to be. And I think this text points us to some sobering realities because the, the current mentality about sin is far from biblical. We'll get into that. The big idea this morning is that Jesus is the only suitable sacrifice to cover your sinfulness. And we'll, uh, we'll get to that whole idea of your sinfulness later on. But it starts with this idea that Jesus identifies with sinners like us. And some of you might be going, okay, where's Jesus here? Doesn't mention Jesus here. Okay? And my whole perspective in looking at Leviticus is the perspective of, that we find in Hebrews, which talks about how all of the sacrifices pointed to Christ in what he was going to do. God was preparing his people well in advance, okay, 1,400 years in advance of Jesus' coming, preparing him so that they would understand that which he was about to do and why he had to do it. And so this text in Leviticus, Moses is beginning to prepare the people. He's instructing them on the worship of, of God in the, in the covenant community, in the redeemed community, but it's pointing to what Christ will come and do. God is the one who initiates this discussion about offerings. It is not Moses. Okay, God summons Moses. He calls Moses to the tent of meeting. Okay, that's important. Very important. This is not how some people, as some people think, how we have decided to deal with the problem of our sinfulness. It is, in fact, how God decided to deal with the problem of our sinfulness. That's a big difference. This is not a guy, in a, you know, kind of going, you know, well, I know God's sort of mad at me, so what will I do? This is God saying, I know you struggle with your sin, and here is what I'm going to do to make things right between you and me. I'm going to open a way so that you can still come and worship me. And this way is only temporary, and it points to the eternal way that is coming. My son will come and open the door forever. Okay? So, but this is a discussion about offerings that are given freely. Okay? God is not twisting the arms here, but these are people who are freely making these offerings. But when we get to the end, we see in, in places like verse 13, this is a burnt offering, a food offering, a pleasing aroma to the Lord. It was not pleasing to the people, necessarily. That's not the focus and the goal, although a good steak, that aroma is pleasing to me. Okay, 
But the goal here is that God is pleased with the offering. Okay? He established this. This is not people trying to figure out how to make God happy. This is God letting us know, this is what we need to do. This is what needs to take place. The context of this, of course, is livestock. The, the offerings here are livestock for the olah or the burnt offering. An animal was to be brought, and it's key that it is livestock. It is not to be an animal that you found in the wilderness. It is not to be an animal that you hunted and captured. It is meant to be from your own herds, meaning it is meant to be part of your own livelihood. It was costly. Sin is costly. God wants them to get that understanding, that message here. We don't bring any old thing to atone for sin, but we were to bring, well, they were to bring at that point, livestock. Now, the kind of animal that you brought depended upon your financial condition. We see it starts off with the bulls, then it goes to the sheep and the goats, and lastly, it ends with the birds. Okay? If you were a rich man and you brought a bird, something was wrong. It was meant to be in keeping with your financial means. Abraham would bring a bull because he was a wealthy man. He would bring a bull. The average person, probably you know, your middle class guy, he's going to bring a goat or a sheep. That is an appropriate offering for him to make. The poor widow who has nothing, she is the one. Or the destitute person, they are the one who would bring the bird. Okay? This shows us that God is compassionate and He is mindful of the poor. He doesn't set one standard, so to speak, that all must meet. He does not say to the poor man, I do not care how poor you are, you're bringing me a bull. God doesn't do that. He's also mindful of sinners. He is merciful as well as compassionate. He is the one who is providing this way for the people to come and to worship Him. Okay, Let's keep that in mind as we look at this, at this whole thing because it really sort of shapes our understanding, how we, how we look at everything that's here. We could look at this as God is mean and horrible, but I, I look at this and I see His compassion and His mercy at work. Now, the first thing the, the worshiper, the one who's bringing the, the Olah or the burnt offering is to do is to lay his hand upon the head of the animal. This is a common formula that we're going to see later on uh, in other parts uh, of Leviticus, particularly on the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. And usually what they say there is confess the sins placing them onto the animal. There's a representation that goes on there. But, but there's no formula that is sort of given here. Okay, There's no mention of praying. There's no mention of confessing. It's sort of left blank here. And when, when the commentators talk about what, how this particular offering fit into the whole worship of Israel, what we see is, is that this offering is not for particular sins, such as, as would be confessed on the Day of Atonement, not, as we're going to look at next week, unintentional sins, but really this has more to do, as A.A. A. Hodge notes, and you've got at the beginning of your order of worship, that this has to do more with our condition, our sinfulness, not our particular sins. 
It is our heart that is at issue here. It is not necessarily the manifestations of our tainted, sinful heart. Think of it this way. My wife and I like to watch House. Okay? We're in season four now. Okay? That's the beauty of Netflix. All right? There's a difference between a disease and the symptoms. The symptoms are how the disease manifests itself. But symptoms, particular symptoms, can be caused by more than one disease, right? So if all you treat are the symptoms, you're not getting to the core issue, you know, the disease. Our particular sins are the symptoms of our disease of sin, so to speak. They're how it shows up in you. Remember, every disease that, you know, how they list numerous symptoms that can occur, they don't necessarily occur in every person. You can have the same disease as someone else, but your symptoms might be slightly different. My wife and I can get a cold, and yet it will look different in each of us. It's the same virus. I caught it from her, but our symptoms, or she caught it from me. <laughs> but the symptoms may look different. Okay, this is about the disease, not the symptoms. Okay, this particular offering deals with our sinful condition, not the manifestations of that sinful condition. Okay, what's interesting to me is I thought about Jesus this week and about the Gospels in particular and how they relate. There are only essentially two events that are recorded in all four Gospels. Two. You know, you see a lot of overlap between, you know, the, the first three Gospels, but, you know, John's in a little different ballgame, so to speak. Two things. The first thing that is common to all four Gospels is his baptism. The inauguration of his earthly ministry that time in which he went, undertook a baptism. And what was that baptism for? The forgiveness of sin. Did Jesus have any sin? No. And yet, he is, what he's doing is he is identifying himself with his people who are in fact sinful. So at the very beginning of his ministry, he's laying out, I am doing this. I am identifying with the rest of you. And this will become clearer later on, my people, when you see how my earthly ministry ends, which is how the only, the other thing that all four Gospels contain, his death and resurrection. Okay? Interesting that those are the two things that are found in all four Gospels. His baptism is incredibly significant because he identifies with sinners, people like us, particularly so that he can be a sacrificial offering. And so Jesus began his earthly ministry by identifying with sinners in baptism. So Jesus identifies with us. Not only that, but Jesus substitutes for sinners like us. The, the livestock that is to be brought is supposed to be specific. It is to be male, not female. Male animals were more valuable for livestock. Fewer of them existed. Okay? You had, they typically had more female animals and because of the not, not, no need for marriage in the animal kingdom, right? 
So you can have one bull and lots of cows. Okay? But you don't have a bull, it doesn't, it doesn't matter how many cows you have. Okay? The male animal was more valuable in this agrarian society in which they lived. Okay? But not only was it to be a male, but it was to be specifically without blemish. There was to be nothing wrong with it. It, it, it was not to have any physical disfiguration. It was to be perfectly healthy. It needed to be perfect, not flawed. In other words, it would be an animal that you would keep, not that you would get rid of. That is significant. We see later on, like in Malachi, that one of the problems with, this, with the offerings of the people of Israel at that time was they were bringing the diseased and the crippled animals to God. Here, have this one. Violating the command that was here. This command exists because this is an animal that, so to speak, has not been marked or demarred or disfigured by sin. Precisely because it is pointing to Jesus, who himself was without blemish. There were no sins, there was no sinfulness of his own for which he must die, for which he must atone. We see this in a couple of different passages. Hebrews 9. How much more then than the blood of animals, bulls, will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself an unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God? First Peter chapter 1, that we were redeemed with the precious blood of, of Christ, the lamb without blemish or defect. Why would the writer of Hebrews in 1 Peter mention that? It is significant. It is important, not just in keeping with Leviticus, but in keeping with the whole idea that there is nothing for which Jesus must pay for himself. Everything he suffers is as a substitute for others. Not himself. And then, as it says, this lamb or this bull would be accepted for the worshiper. It was accepted by God in place of the worshiper as a substitute. Important concept, this whole idea of substitution. I can think of, we see examples of this all the time if you watch any movies or TV. Inevitably, in a in some sort of hostage situation, they're gonna take someone and some guy stand take me instead. Okay? And now this always happens. You know. He wants to be a substitute. He wants to deliver that person who's usually a woman or a child from danger. And is standing trying to stand in between the danger and that person. It offers themselves as a substitute. And that is exactly what happens with this animal. This animal is going to take the wrath of God for the worshiper. It's going to stand in the way and absorb the brunt of the blow. Okay? A substitute. Taken in place of. But here's, here's part of the interesting thing as we, as we look at this. We live in such a consumeristic society, you know. What, what, what do we do with our LPG tanks? We go to the blue rhino dealer and we leave our good one, I mean our bad one, and pick up a new one. 
In fact, when I moved here, I, I came with two empty tanks, one of which had a broken thing, a broken handle, and I got two new good ones back. This is what we do, right? We just leave it there. But the, but the worshiper of God, the one who makes this offering, didn't just bring his livestock and walk away. He was the one who, who killed the animal, skinned the animal, that's what it means to flay, and chopped it to bits so that it could fit upon the altar. It was not the priest. The priest would take the blood and, and toss it upon the altar. Not the, okay, the, the, we don't get into the Holy of Holies until the Day of Atonement. Okay? So it's not upon the mercy seat, but he throws it upon the altar. And then he places the, the chopped up pieces of meat upon the altar. That's what the priest does. But it is the worshiper who kills, flays, and chops up the animal. I've never, I've never chopped up an animal. Anyone, anyone here? Okay, we have a few people. Was it fun? What words would you use to describe it, either of you? It was fairly gruesome. Okay. Dick, any, any words to add to gruesome? It was a job. And it was an, it was an ugly job. Okay. Christine. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, you're taking a live animal and you're taking its life with the recognition that that is what you deserve. You're, you're getting a front row view of the costliness of sin. And it is something that we often don't get now, but they got. And the descriptions of when they finally built the temple and, and when the, the sacrifice... A river of blood would flow from the altar. And the coppery smell and everything, all the other smells associated with slain animals were everywhere. I mean, this was offensive to the senses. That's how ugly sin is. That's what God wants to drive through to these people. That is how horrible sin is. This was not just a theoretical death, but this was one that you executed in your own hands. We see Jesus who comes as a substitute. He who was without sin, as it says in 2 Corinthians 5, became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. He comes as our substitute. He stands and he says, essentially, my fault. He he stands between the executioner and and the one to be executed and says, take me instead. Let the blame fall on me that they may go free. And it's not a fine. It is death. That's, that's what's so remarkable about Romans 5. When, when Paul sort of piles up some of these things, when we were still powerless, when we were still ungodly, while we were still enemies, sorry, st- still sinners, 
when we were God's enemies, that is when Christ died for us. Not you were able to pretty yourself up and, and, and make yourself appealing to Him. He died when you, for you when you were at your worst. Okay? That's the glory of the gospel. And so sin means that someone must die. And Jesus puts himself in our place as the substitute. So we see Jesus identifying with sinners like us. We see Jesus substituting uh, for sinners like us. And we see also, thirdly and lastly, Jesus atones for sinners like us. This week I did a little research online on the topic of forgiveness. How do different religions view this idea of forgiveness? How do one, does one get it? Well, the ancient Near East religions, the, the religions that were around the Israelites, and, and I would include the Jew, not the Jewish, the Greek religions in the same way, is that they, they basically believed in irrational, angry deities. Okay? Their gods, you know, something bad would happen, and you wouldn't exactly know why it was happening, but you knew you had to make a sacrifice to make the god happy. Yeah, you see this when if you read um, the Trojan War. What happens is that the uh, Helen of Troy has been taken off to Troy, okay, against the wishes of her father and her husband and her husband, the king. And the king sets out with his great armada to go and reca- and get Helen back. And the winds are against them, and so they believe that the gods are angry with them, and so they sacrifice. They go back and sacrifice a person. And the winds suddenly now go westward, and they're able, they're able to move to Troy to begin this, this, uh, this siege against Troy to regain Helen. So that, that points at the sort of this, these irrational deities that have to be appeased, but we're not really sure why. Okay. If you look at Judaism after the temple was destroyed in 70 AD, and at Islam, it's, they're very similar in that neither of them offer sacrifices. They may have fasts, but really what they, part of what they depend upon are these ideas of these formulaic prayers. And it's, it's, part of it's interesting because they say, you know, let's imagine for a minute I, I've sinned against Diane. Okay? God doesn't forgive that sin. Diane has to forgive that sin. So I, I would have to approach Diane, not God, to be forgiven of that sin. And we understand that too. Okay? But we also understand that every sin I commit is also against God. If I sin against Diane, I'm also sinning against God. So he's involved no matter what. But they kind of, you know, but the, the whole idea is if you, if you say the right prayer, if you follow the right ritual, God hopefully will forgive you. You're not too sure with Allah. You know, he's a little unpredictable at times. Uh, but uh, at least in Judaism, basically, you, you follow the formulaic prayers, it's, it's good. Buddhism and Hinduism are, are very interesting. They're very similar because they're both built on this idea of karma, and so basically they're, how they approach that, the, the Hindus will offer more sacrifices, the Buddhists tend not to offer sacrifices, but either way you're trying to balance the scales so that uh, you don't have bad karma, and so that next time you're not in a worse position, but you've actually moved yourself higher along, and so it can be, you can balance the scales by doing good. Okay? I remember watching the movie Replacement Killers. It was uh, based on a movie out of Hong Kong, and the main character, played by uh, Chow Yun-Fat in both versions, uh, was, a, was a Buddhist. And uh, one of the dialogue that takes place with him and a, this girl that he's on the run with 
is the idea that don't you just wish that there was one thing, one good thing you could do to make up for all the bad things you have done. That's part of the human heart without Jesus. Wondering what that one good thing you can do to make up for all the lousy things you've done is. Or, okay, maybe seven or eight smaller good things <laughs> to make up for the, <laughs> the things that you have done. Okay? But all of these ultimately underestimate the weight and burden of our sin and our sinfulness. In his great defense of substitutionary atonement, Anselm writes, and he does this in dialogue form, and I think it's interesting that in English, his, the person he's dialoguing with is called Bozo. Sounds like Bozo the Clown to me. I don't know. Because he's pretty clueless, really, ultimately. And Anselm says to Bozo that you do not yet under, uh, do not grasp yet, different translations have different ways, but you don't grasp the weight the burden of sin. If you think God can be bought off by a couple of prayers or by a couple of good deeds, you have not yet grasped the seriousness of sin. If you think God can be bought off by an extra $100 or $1,000 or a million dollars in the offering plate, you don't really grasp the seriousness, the weightiness of sin. He's not bought off by helping the little old lady down the street. He's not bought off by spending a year of your life in Africa helping people who have AIDS or don't have water, digging wells to help them get water. He's not bought off like that. Ritual and obedience won't do. That's what Leviticus is trying to teach us. This offering is made so that the one who, the worshiper, the one who makes the offering may be accepted. The worshiper is seeking to be accepted by God, to be received by God, welcomed by God. And the problem is, is that our sinfulness creates this conflict with God, this friction, as some people have said it, that must be resolved. And large portions of Leviticus are written to about resolving that friction, that conflict that exists between God and man. And so Moses, uh, actually God telling Moses, that this is, this is done, this, this offering is made to make atonement. That's why this offering is not just a God, I want to be your buddy offering. God, I want to serve you offering. It's included in that, but it must make atonement. It must cover over sin. It must pacify the wrath of God. And now it it is um, common in our day and age to say that oh, I believe in a God of love, not a God of wrath. But if we look at this biblically, you cannot have a God of love who shows no wrath. If I love my wife, and I do, 
What happens if someone threatens her? Do I sit idly by? Or do I rise up in wrath? You see, love protects the beloved. We see this in the, the, the latest version of The Incredible Hulk, the, the, the Edward Norton version. Okay? I like it much better than the Edward Banya version. Um, there are times when, when Hulk is angry and his wrath is sort of general and you're not really sure what it's about. But then what often happens in the movie to develop the plot, the woman he loves is in danger. And Hulk could be losing. But suddenly, because the one he loves is in danger, Hulk gains strength and he gains focus to deliver the one he loves. God is not an angry God in a, in a sort of indiscriminate sort of, you know, like God just walks around angry all the time, all right? <laughs> He's not Hulk when Hulk is just, Hulk's mad. He, he is more like Hulk when the one he loves is in danger. His wrath may be great, but it is focused and it is purposeful to deliver that which he loves. It is because God loves his image and himself that he hates sin and he hates sinners because they sin. That's what his wrath is about. He sees it destroying his image. And he wants to stop it. But even here we see God's willingness to forgive because he provides an offering to atone, to, to take away his wrath. His willingness to forgive here is based upon the offering. There is a debt that is, that is paid. Right now we're, we're I've sort of shifted my focus, at least with Jaden, because she's more verbal. Okay. You know, you know, when kids are little, you teach them how to say, I'm sorry. Right. Well, now I'm, I'm, I'm trying to work with Jaden that when someone says that they're sorry for doing something, that she will not say, it's okay but that she will say, I forgive you. Because when we sin against someone, it's never okay. You can forgive. Forgiving recognizes the debt that has been incurred and says, I'm not going to demand it from you anymore. That is different than it's okay. Because what it's okay means is, is that it really didn't matter. Sin matters. We can forgive sin. We don't overlook sin and forget about it, neglect it. This offering reveals God does not just kind of turn a blind eye to sin. A payment is made that there might be forgiveness. But what happens in the gospel is that it is not you who makes the payment. It is Jesus himself who makes the, the payment. Jesus is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, as we see in places like Romans 3 that we read this morning and, and in uh, 1 John. He is the one that removes God's wrath. He is the one who covers over our guilt and removes our shame. So we don't have to make our, uh, a way. We don't have to clean up our own mess. Jesus is the one who cleans up our mess. There are times when kids make huge messes 
right? Those of you about to be parents or new, you know, new parents, you'll learn this. Kids make humongous messes, and I cleaned one of them up last night. <laughs> they can't always clean the messes that they make. We have to, we as parents go in and we clean it up after them. And that's what God the Father has done through His Son. He cleans up the mess that we made of our lives and of others' lives with our sin. Part of what is interesting about this offering is that because this is the, there are other burnt, burnt offerings, so this is the whole burnt offering which means that it's not just cooked on the grill to make a nice steak. Sometimes the, there are some that the, the priests and the Levites would eat the meat, and there's even uh, in the fellowship offerings, the, the worshiper would eat some of, some of the meal before God. But in this instance, everything is burned up. The whole thing is burned to ashes. The entire sacrifice is devoted to God. It all goes up in smoke, which is where the whole idea of the olah, the, the Hebrew word, is up in, basically up in smoke. It's carried up to God into this pleasing aroma. Okay, So this implies not only that our sins are atoned for, but that there's also this, this total dedication to God that takes place. And we see this taking, resulting in, as you saw in Hebrews 9, Jesus offered his blood. What? What does it do? It cleanses our consciences. Why? So that we can serve him. Okay? The work of Christ not only cleanses us from our sin, but enables us to serve him. He, uh, Romans 12. Okay? In light of God's mercy, or view of God's mercy, offer yourselves as living sacrifices. That idea that our devotion flows out of Christ's sacrifice. Yeah, ignore the clock. It's not really one o'clock. Don't let, don't let your mind play tricks on you. I haven't preached that long. Okay. But there's this idea that our devotion only comes because we've been redeemed. The gospel not only frees us from our guilt and shame, but it also frees us to serve Him. Okay. So God is concerned about the condition of your heart, not just your actions. Our actions flow out of a tainted heart. And something had to be done about that sinful heart. And so Jesus comes and he is identified with it in his baptism. He becomes a substitute for it in his death, which covered our sinfulness and removed God's wrath. And not only that, he cleanses our hearts to produce proper devotion. And so, to kind of transform the Capital One commercials, what's in your heart? Are your consciences still foul from your sin? Or have they been set free? Free to love and serve the God who made you? What's in there? What's in there will be, will be, is directly connected to whether or not you are relying upon Christ or Jesus and something else. If there's anything else, 
Your heart is still foul. And you're not worshiping. You're not serving him. You struggle with that desire. Because something else is in the way. Something else that cannot give you grace is being sought as if it could. Looking for grace in all the wrong places. So, anyway. I have preached too long. Let's pray. Father, it would be easy for us to walk away this morning with uh, some wrong ideas. For us to focus too much upon our sinfulness or too much upon your wrath. Help us to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, the Savior who was stuck in the middle, who takes away both our sinfulness and your wrath. So I ask that you would renew our minds to transform our hearts so that we might live as people whose sin has been removed. We ask this in the name of him who saves sinners and sanctifies saints, Jesus, the substitute. Amen.